Falling and getting back up is what make the cycles of an entrepreneurial journey, but some people just enjoy to be constantly getting ideas off the ground, even if the previous ones are growing steady. Alex Torrenegra is an example of this. Alex has been a friend for over a decade, and I'm proud that the first ever angel investment he did was in my company, Vivoreal. You may also know him as a tiburon in the TV show Shark Tank Colombia. But before all that, Alex bootstrapped a number of companies, including Voice123 and Bunny Studio, both of which he started with his wife, Tania Zapata. Then, in 2020, after years of being an investor and his own venture capitalist, Alex went out to raise capital for a business of his own for the first time. And while a lot of founders may prefer not to have too many people on their cap table, he intentionally went the opposite way. By design, Torre's first seed round had over 50 investors from more than 15 countries. In this episode, Alex Torrenegra tells us his experience fundraising during the pandemic and being rejected, some of his lessons from 20 years of building remote companies, the model behind Torrenegra Accelerator, and what was the most memorable pitch he heard on Shark Tank and why it stuck. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. First off, we've been friends now for like a decade, and we became friends because you ended up investing in my company. Back in the day when Vivra was just starting, you were kind of my first, like, I could call you a professional investor if that fits, even though you hadn't done a lot of investing yet, but you were an entrepreneur that made an investment. So we got to know each other there. We were even in your co-working space that you had, Hubbug back then. We had a lot of interactions, and then we've become better friends and closer friends over the years. And now I'm, I get to be an investor in Torre and then you've invested in Aptuno and like, we just get to do a lot more stuff together. So, but I wanted to set the stage for the audience and talk a little bit your background because you have a pretty interesting background. And I want to start off with a story that I really love and I want you to share it with the audience. And I want to hear it again, because I think it's just like one of those entrepreneur stories that just illustrates kind of hustle and like the vision you have about what you've built up until now. Talk us through Alex at 14. You walk by the computer, take us back to your childhood there and, uh, <laughs> and tell us a little bit more about that and then how that kind of shaped you moving forward as an entrepreneur. So, so I actually have to go back to uh, when I was uh, four years uh, of age, but, but first and foremost, uh, Brian, thanks a lot for uh, inviting me and honor for me to, to, to share this time, not only with your audience, but uh, in particular with you. It's always a pleasure. Um, so yeah, when I saw my, my oldest memory in life is seeing a computer for the first time. Like I have that very vivid memory. I was four years of age. I saw a computer, I could control what was on the screen with the keyboard. And it was a car video game, I remember. And up until then, the only screen that I could control was the TV. And you could change back in the day, I'm originally from Colombia. Uh, we had two channels, channel seven and channel nine, that's it. So those are the only two things that you could do. Now with this computer, like you could do many things with the screen. And that was for me shocking. And I became obsessed with the idea of having a computer. Now, I come from a modest family. We used to live in the outskirts of Bogota. We didn't have money for a car, much less for a computer. Uh, but uh, I didn't know better. So I kept bugging every person that I came across with, uh, that telling them that I wanted a computer. Um, my dad had, le had left home when I was one year old. And he, uh, after bugging him a lot over the phone, with the idea, he finally told me, okay, you're going to school now, but if you get the best degrees in your school, I'm going to get you that computer. And uh, the, this was, uh, I was 
five by then, I and I started in a school that had three thousand people from primary school all the way to, to 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 high school, and it took me one year and a half. But finally, I got the best grades of the entire school. I became a hardcore nerd uh, trying to get the best uh, the, the best scores, of course, and I got it. And I went back and I told my mom, "Hey, listen, mom, can you please get me in touch with my dad? I was six age, uh, six years old now." And uh, uh, after two weeks or so, I was finally able to get a hold of him. I told him, listen, that the, the, the challenge you gave me, I, I was able to accomplish it. So now you can get me that computer you promised me. This is 1984. Uh, so what is it? 36 years ago now? 37 years ago? To this day, I'm waiting for the computer. Uh, he didn't give me the computer ever. So that's why many people have say that I have daddy issues and I, I believe them when they tell me that. In fact, my last name is not my dad's last name any longer. But anyway, I, uh, I, I continue not only being obsessed with the idea of being like a very competitive student, but continue with being obsessed with the idea of having a computer. And it was only when I was 14 that I finally figured how I could get it. And that is because uh, I had a, a savings on a bank uh, account that had uh, a saving accounts for kids and uh, a few weeks before I turned 15, I got a letter from them, a pamphlet, telling me, telling me, hey, we are going to upgrade your kid's account over to an adult's account. And you're going to get all of these benefits, like a debit card and this and that. And I remember the very last one was a loan. We'll now loan you money. And I, 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 I oh, that's great. Finally, I'm going to be able to buy the computer. So I figured that I needed some, that I could buy a computer and then use the computer uh, to set up a business and use the proceeds of that business to pay back that loan. And uh, uh, this is 1990, uh, this is 1992. Uh, the, the idea of, of transcribing the thesis uh, documents of uh, university students uh, to the computer was becoming popular because before that they had to like use the typewriter and every time they got some kind of feedback from the professors, they had to like retype everything. But now, even if they didn't have a computer, many university students wanted to have their thesis and, and other long documents on a, on a digital format. So the idea of the pasan trabajos a computadora, signs on streets that say, we transcribe your homeworks to the computer uh, became popular in some places in Colombia, and uh, I decided to offer that service. So I, I uh, got my, the only friend I had whose brother had a computer to print a sign that said, we do this, and this is my phone number, this is my address. And uh, we posted that on all of the posts and walls that I could find on my neighborhood, uh, the early days of the spam, <laughs> right? So you just post the signs on the street all over the place. And, uh, People started arriving to, to my home and like knocking on the door, like, hey, we noticed that you guys do this. Uh, how much is it? And et cetera, et cetera. And, and the first thing I realized is that people wouldn't trust me because they saw me being too young. So I had to start uh, faking it and saying, no, it's my mom, but uh, she's not here, but I can give you information about this. Uh, and then I gave them different prices and, and different time frames to see what kind of, uh, of, of how much money and how about demand we could actually get out of that. And some people started saying, okay, yes, here is, here is what I need you to transcribe. 
And uh, so then I had to like, again, because we didn't have a computer. So I had to tell them, oh, no, we have like two months of queue. So thank you. But maybe next time. But that information, I took it and I realized, okay, I have a business in here that I could potentially, uh, uh, after two years of doing data entry work, I'm going to be able to, to pay back for the loan that I get. So I went to the bank. I waited online uh, to talk to the teller. And uh, uh, when when I got to the teller, I told him, hey, I'm looking for a loan based on this pamphlet that you guys sent me. I turned 15 yesterday, so like I can get the loan now. And of course, the guy cracked up. I didn't know why. I, I, I don't have a clear memory of what happened in there because, because I got really mad, so it's kind of blurry. Yeah. But uh, I remember then, uh, ending on the, at the office of the manager of that branch of the bank. Uh, with she being really concerned and asking me questions about like, why are you asking for money? Where are your parents? Are you okay? Like she was really concerned that I was like asking for money in, in a bank. And um, eventually she got it. And, and then I started like pitching my idea and not realizing I ended up making my first business pitch to her. And um, uh, she gave me some paperwork, uh, asked me to fill, fill out the, some forms. Around four days later, I went back to the bank and uh, she gave me a loan of 820,000 pesos, which is kind of $800, uh, which combined with the $50 or so that I had saved allowed me to buy my first computer. Clone machine in Unilago, Bogota, a place that you're very familiar with as you also started doing business in Colombia there, <laughs> as I believe. Uh, a clone computer. And that was my first business. And because it was only me, even though it was only me, it was, I was working three, four hours per day at most, but I had plenty of time to think about that. I ended up naming that business Apache Axe Cybernetic Enterprises. And because my mom is an attorney, I had to add at the very end, limitada, limited. <laughs> right, so that was my so let's business. Just, let's just say that you weren't a marketing genius as a kid. <laughs> I, I I didn't know what marketing was, and I still think that I that I suck at it. But <laughs> but uh, I had some intuition, I guess. But it's 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 innovation. Scarcity brings innovation, and that's why I don't consider myself an entrepreneur out of passion. Like I don't like entrepreneurship per se. What I like is technology. I like innovation, and for me, entrepreneurship has been the way of uh, affording uh, more and better innovation, more and better impact with those. Uh, things that we can innovate. Yeah, well, despite you, you know, maybe not having the the foresight on the branding at that age, but actually the marketing and the promotion, you, you got the the interest of the customer first, right? And so there's a lesson there, right? I mean, you went out and you built a demand for your product, and then you went out and you figured out how to get the thing that enabled you to deliver the service. And what happens then? You get this check. Walk me through like what's next and what happens from there. So, so I got the check. I had actually didn't get the check. It was cash. I was really afraid because you don't want to walk around with cash in Colombia, right? So you had cash. You had cash. At yeah. That point. Okay. All yeah, right. I, I got I got the cash, and um, so uh, I had had the, the chance of you know quoting like a thousand different stores uh, that sold computers. So I already knew which store I wanted to go to. So I got there and I got my first computer, uh, a three eighty six machine, a clone as we used to call it. Uh, with uh, actually, I recently I got the same printer, uh, or at least the same model of the printer that I used back in the day uh, for doing my work. It's it's an Epson. I don't even remember the model name. LX810. A dot matrix uh, uh, printer in there. Anyway, that was the computer, and um, 
it was it was hard because I got the loan only for a year instead of the two years. So my mom had to help me. My grandmother, she was 82 back then. She learned how to use the computer to, to help me. And it was really funny because she never got the concept of saving. Uh, back in the day, there was no auto saving. You had to manually save with Control S. So uh, whenever I fell asleep at night, she would continue working on the computer. And uh, I taught her how to turn off the monitor, but not to turn off the computer. Next day in the morning, as soon as I woke up, before I even turn on the screen, I will go and hit Control S, and I will wait for the diskette to finish saving the file, and then I will turn on the screen, and hopefully what she worked the previous night wouldn't go, wouldn't go to waste. <laughs> so a lot of hard work, and in the very last payment that uh, I ended up making it two or three days delayed, uh, I figure that the loan was not given to me by the bank. The loan was actually given to me by the bank manager. It would have been illegal for the bank to give a loan to a minor. She ended up giving me the loan. She was no longer in the bank. Uh, to this day, I'm still looking for her. I don't know who she is. I don't know what her name uh, is, but I'm still looking for her to be able to help her uh, sorry, to thank her for uh, what she did. Because when it comes to, you know, angel investment, I don't think that <laughs> that that I have seen anyone that has been more of an angel investing her money than, than she was with me. It's amazing. She must have seen something in you. And it's having those kind of support at that moment, it really has enabled you to do a lot of things. And having that early support is just critical for where you are today. And so it would be amazing if we could track her down and yeah. you know and find out. That's an incredible story to have. Someone that take a, takes a bet on you, right? That's something that's yeah. all it takes. Uh, that's a great reminder of the impact that people can have. So you did that, and then so that's your kind of your first foray. And so you did that for a while, and then I mean, what happened next, and where did you go from there? So that data entry company ended up becoming an IT services company. By the time I was 18, I had uh, 25 people in my company working primarily uh, with companies, Colombian subsidiaries of American companies that uh, needed like connect their companies to the internet or something like that. So the internet arrived to Colombia in 1998. I fell in love with the internet. I was browsing, I like every single penny I was making, I was reinvesting it on browsing the web. 30 cents of dollar per minute to browse the web at 14 kilobits. <laughs> but I didn't care. I dropped college because I was actually learning more on the web than I was learning on college already. And I became obsessed with the idea of coming to the US and being part of the creation of the, of the, of the web. Uh, because, uh, of course, there wasn't such a as global innovation back then as we see it today. So uh, very difficult for Colombians to be able to get a visa to come to the US, but I finally got a tourist visa in late 1998. And within a few weeks, I was here in, in the US. Initially, I thought, you know, I'm going to learn by becoming the employee of one of those companies that are killing it on the internet. Compaq and Lycos, I remember, were two brands that I was paying a lot of attention back in the day. I quickly realized that my English wasn't good enough. So instead of uh, of uh, working for those companies, I ended up cooking hamburgers in McDonald's in the overnight shift and shifting or organizing ties at a Filene's and from Macy's on the uh, northeast of the U.S., yeah, arranging ties on the sales floor uh, in there. And uh, fast forward, I moved to Miami. I met a couple of uh, Latinos that were on tech. 
and and I started working uh, initially with for them, eventually um, with them as we partnered up, and I became co-founder of some small efforts here and there. I experienced the dot-com bubble and how many of those companies were like really throwing away a lot of money. And um, by the in 2001, the very beginning of 2001, I met Tania Zapata. Tania Zapata, and uh, this is a painting of Tania Zapata. <laughs> Not only we ended up falling in love, uh, but uh, we ended up uh, founding multiple uh, companies and now co-investing as angel investors in many other companies as well. I want, I want to talk about that a little bit because yeah. when I was building Viveral in the early days, my wife and I also worked together. And it's one of those things that like, obviously the level of trust is like unparalleled with your spouse, right? It was really important that I had someone that I could trust and she had someone that she could trust and we could work together. But there's inherent challenges when you're like, you know, so how do you balance the all the stuff that you have going on? How do you stop from like having conversations at 10 p.m. about all the businesses you have or all the investments that you've made. What's the secret there? Cause I found that the best thing for us was like, let's just do it different things. And, you know, now she's, you know, doing her own entrepreneurial thing and, you know, I'm supporting her, but you guys are a very dynamic duo. You're both running companies and how do you balance the relationship and, and balance the business stuff? Yeah, so I think that the short answer is we don't. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. Like, like, there are many things, many values that, that we share and many things we can chat about for, for hours, for days. And one of them is, is entrepreneurship, is, is innovation. Like, like, like she loves innovation, entrepreneurship and, and doing new things as much as I, as I do. And that, that, that's a joy. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that it's been always great. We've discovered that we are really good at coming up with new things together. But when it comes to scaling them, we can very quickly end up in the position of wanting to kill each other. And uh, it took me, it took us two companies to figure that out, right? So the first company, Voice123, uh, she was the CEO, I was the CTO. And after three years, like we realized, no, we have to take separate ways uh, business-wise because otherwise that we are going to end up like divorcing in there. So, but then later on in 2012-11, we did Bonnie Studio, another company. We started the company again, and also within three years, we realized we have to go separate ways in here because we are going to end up killing each other. We continue doing business. And, and, and the reason is because when you are creating something, that, that um, level of trust that you mentioned, that, that, that level of empathy and knowing what you can expect and the strengths of your significant other are are very good and allow you to iterate really, really, really fast. Like, for example, Tanya has a huge level of empathy. Like, uh, like she's one of the most empathetic people I know. If I have a conversation with her about a given, let's say, interface or UX prototype that I created, it's the equivalent of talking like to 20 different people because not only she gives her, he gives you her input, she can right away imagine the perspective of many, many, many other people and she's going to raise that right away um but as the company scales now not you but other members of the team need a more clear structure in terms of who reports to whom uh if something doesn't work who should i complain if something works who should i tell uh, about that and um, 
when one of your colleagues is the significant other of your CEO, that adds a lot of friction and uh, a lot of taboos. And uh, be, when, when then you start, you, you need to start managing your significant other the way that you manage the people that report to you, whether it's me reporting to her or she reporting to me. In our case, that hasn't worked. And that's when we realize, okay, we, we have to stop in, in, in there. And as for the, for the rest, uh, in terms of our professional life as investors, I, uh, so we have a holding, Emma, Emma Studio, which is kind of a startup studio. Uh, I handle the holding, and then Tanya handles all of our personal finances and our personal investment as well. And uh, we give each other a lot of freedom on that regard. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think, you know, how do you scale these things? Like, I remember back in the day when we first met, we was at a, a meetup that you had organized. What was the meetup called? Bogotech. Bogotech. It was at Bogotech. Yeah. I remember you were the speaker there. And uh, I remember chatting with you afterwards. And I was at early days, like trying to be in Colombia, trying to figure out how to build a company. And I remember at the time I was like, wow, this guy actually has like a real business, profitable, growing. And what's interesting, I want to double click on that because you've built these, you've got this holding because you've got these assets that you've built up. You know, you've got Voice Bunny, you've got Voice One, Two, Three, and you've got a handful of other assets that you've created. And you've always, given that you started really early in your journey and there wasn't an ecosystem of venture capital and probably no one would have given you money at that point because there just wasn't an, you know, much of an ecosystem. You basically started from the standpoint of just like bootstrapping everything, right? And just like financing businesses with actual cash flow, which then you made cash flow and then you invested in other business. Then you invested in my company with the cash flow you generated. So first of all, you're like an old school business guy in that sense. And now you're building a moonshot tech company. So talk us through a little bit about how you went from the evolution of like building profitable companies, which I think is the dream of most entrepreneurs. No one wants to depend on other people's money, uh, but maybe, you know, you, you had a handful of things that you almost like your own venture capitalist, like what people don't know about you. I remember back in Colombia, you started uh, let go, right? Which uh, this was basically kind of like Airbnb before Airbnb. And it was a, a really an issue around timing and other things, but you funded that and that didn't work uh, for whatever reason. And, you know, you lost some bunch of money on that, I'm sure. So you were kind of your own venture capitalist with your own. And so how has it been now transitioning to like Torre where you've got this like massive big idea and you, you obviously, you're going to have resources in your capital. Do you want to change how people find jobs and hire and build a global monster? You're going to have to bring on institutional investors. So talk us through a little bit more about how you went through the process of going from like the bootstrapping profitable businesses to like one of massive impact where you, you need financial resources beyond your own capital. So before creating my first company, I was exposed to an entrepreneur in, in Miami, Alfredo Purrinos. He had a company called Rentalo.com. That company was on the travel sector. And it's kind of an Airbnb 1.0. So it's actually, it was an early competitor of BRBO or, or uh, Birbo, as they cultivate themselves. And he had bootstrapped this company. In fact, uh, Birbo was bootstrapped uh, as well. I love those like vacation rental marketplaces. So that's, that's, that, that's what I learned. So when we started Voice 123, I assumed that you had to bootstrap those businesses. I knew what venture capital was because I had seen, you know, the crazy stuff happening during the, during the uh, uh, dot com uh, era. But uh, I didn't know what angel investors was. 
uh, or what angel investors were. Like that, that was something new for me. So I, the idea of getting a couple of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars never crossed my mind. I thought that VCs uh, was the only way to go. And of course, for that, that was a different league than the league that I was playing in. Uh, so that's why we were forced to come up with a sustainable business model from the get-go. It wasn't out of choice. It was, once again, uh, out of necessity uh, for me. Now, because it ended up working well, I assumed that it was the best way to go, that I could simply use my capital for doing other things. And that's why with uh, Let Me Go, uh, which had the goal of being kind of a reverse auction marketplace for lodging and accommodations uh, that not only included hotels, but included uh, vacation rentals indeed, uh, that uh, I could do it with my own capital. And uh, uh, it was a very expensive lesson, uh, $3 million out of our own pocket and three years of work before we had to shut it down. Then for the next one, uh, we, with Bunny Studio, we created Bunny Studio, and I did talk to some investors. Uh, there is some uh, actually interesting articles that Fred Wilson published because we did some hacking to be able to get a hold of him. Uh, after a couple of conversations, I realized, you know, I don't have to raise capital for Bunny Studio. I can actually use the cash flows of Voice123 to grow this business and, and keep the freedoms that I like to keep. And indeed, after a couple of years, Bunny Studio was self-sustainable. It was growing and it continues to grow. And it's been growing faster than Voice123. Voice123, by the way, just for context, is a, it's a marketplace for finding voice actors. It's the largest casting service out there for voice actors. Bunny Studio is more of an end-to-end um, marketplace. Bunny Studio is a platform uh, slash network slash service that allows companies to outsource the creation of creative pieces uh, of uh, in digital format at a massive scale. So you can think of it as a kind of an enterprise level fiber or upwork where you're not leading with the freelancer, you're leading with a full team and APIs that allow you to create, for example, 1000 audio ads within a couple of days or uh, automatically uh, create the script for your businesses where actually a human being is doing a lot of the work and making sure that it's top notch quality. Anyway, so we ended up bootstrapping that, that, that company and investors have been uh, coming on a very periodic basis telling us, hey, would like to invest or uh, like when you decide to raise capital, please let us know because it's a really nice business to have. It's growing. It has really good margins, etc. Then in 2016 or so, after uh, seeing the growth, after being exposed to the Endeavor network, and the World Economic Forum's YGL network and YPO and all of that, I realized, uh, okay, it is time for the grand finale. I can build something that has really massive impact. And part of the inspiration also comes from seeing you grow Viva Real in Brazil and, and, and how some people that I, that I uh, had known for some time had been building things that were one or two or three orders of magnitude more impactful than what I had created. And a significant part of that had to do with they were not only using their own resources, but they were actually also going and tapping the resources of other people, both the monetary resources, but also networks and such. And uh, that's why I decided to create Torre. From the get-go, I knew that Torre being a moonshot is not something that I was going to be able to do uh, by ourselves, something that I was going to need many investors and many others helping us. And uh, it was the first time that I decided to go out and, and, and raise capital in a, in a systematic uh, way. And it was scary because uh, I had never done it before. I had invested already in many companies, but I had not actually gone out and raised capital. 
But yeah, last, last year I did it. And by the way, I started raising capital and within two months we had a pandemic. <laughs> so it was, oh, it was so stressful. <laughs> if there's someone that's going to be good at raising money during a pandemic though, and in a remote fashion, it's you, just as a, a quick transition to remote. Speaking of the pandemic, just to frame the conversation here, for those that you know are listening, Alex and I, we were literally planning on traveling with our families to Lake Tahoe. I had rented a house and I had invited you and, and Tanya and Azul, your, your daughter, and Nova wasn't around yet, but we had that plan to go there. And then all of a sudden, California is starting to shut down. This, this thing's happening. And it was like kind of like, do we go? Wasn't quarantine yet. But literally while we're driving to Lake Tahoe and like getting set up, all of a sudden we're on lockdown in California. And so that was uh, an interesting, I remember because... I was on board calls and, you know, my board was freaking out like about this because they were really scared. And I remember talking to your team a little bit about the severity of the situation and hindsight is always 2020 when you're in the, you know, the eye of the storm, you kind of think everything's potentially coming crashing down. And obviously the pandemic is a terrible situation where a lot of people are negatively impacted. But the reality is that for most tech businesses, there's probably some tailwinds because there's an acceleration and when you're in the middle of the storm, I thought you were pretty calm about the situation, but, and I remember having conversation with you, first of all, you were much more prepared than the average person because you've been building remote companies for 10 years. And so literally like probably nothing really changed for you. And if anything, maybe a few months of uncertainty where everyone was just like, okay, we're going to not invest in things or, and so like most companies, probably you held back your costs a little bit and reduced your marketing spend uh, like most companies did during that time. But when things kind of became clear, you're already so well positioned because I actually called you. I'm like, all right, man, this whole remote thing you've been doing, set me up. Like, you know, and, and in fact, the microphone I'm talking on is was a gift from you. So you're the kind of the, the remote king in my mind. And so talk a little bit about fundraising during a pandemic and the preparation that you had going into this with remote how it becomes now it's we'll see where it comes after this but i'm kind of a convert now after after this you've turned me out here onto the onto the uh, <laughs> the remote life but let's talk about that fundraising experience doing it remotely during a pandemic and how did certain aspects of your experience building remote companies put you in a position to be more effective with what you were doing so the fact that I've been building remote companies, uh, all of those companies that I mentioned a moment ago, we started remote and they continue being remote. So that, that allows for a relatively smooth transition into a pandemic. And I say transition because even for those that were working remotely before the pandemic, the pandemic was a transition, right? Like now you couldn't easily go out. Now you couldn't like hang out with your friends. Now you couldn't work out of the co-working space that you wanted to go work to, to work from. And now you had to, to, to find a way of working from home, uh, sometimes a very tight apartment, stuff like that. So it was very difficult for, for many people. But of course, it's easier when all of the systems of the company are already in place for that. Now, as for the fundraising part, I actually don't have a significant amount of experience fundraising in person. Uh, I did it during the very first uh, during the two months of, uh, of, uh, of uh, last year. Uh, but very quickly, as, uh, as, as companies starting to announce that they were sending people to work from home, et cetera, like VCs were some of the first ones also telling people and angel investors, like, hey, let's meet in person, right? So out of a sudden, I found myself uh, only having conversations 
via Zoom with, with potential investors. And, and that's when I realized, you know, I have to make sure that not only the presentation looks good and the pitch looks good, but also my setup looks good because VCs and investors are used to uh, seeing the person face to face. So now I have to, to create that kind of trust just by the environment. And that's why I ended up like investing in this kind of camera setup and, and having a nice background also for investors to look at and many other things to increase the chances of developing trust with the person. But even then, uh, the, during March, late February, March and April, it was dead. No one was investing a single penny in the in, in any kind of company. However, very quickly, towards the, the end of May and the beginning of June, like markets uh, uh, started to, to, to invest uh, heavily. And we were able, so originally the round that we, I was expecting to raise a significant uh, capital from a significant number of investors for several strategic reasons. So I wasn't looking for just one check. I was looking for many, many checks. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about the rationale there, because I thought this was a really good idea. That you had. So, so for that, I have to, to explain a little bit what, what Torre is. So um, with Torre, simply put, we are building a new professional network, but one that is not focused on a new fit for you to self-promote yourself. <laughs> uh, it's more focused, uh, which is what we experienced with LinkedIn today, but one that is actually focused on the job to be done of finding candidates and the job to be done of finding job. It's, uh, there are many reasons why we, why we believe there is a huge opportunity uh, there. Not only it's a highly fragmented market, and there are more than 4,000 job boards, and LinkedIn, as large as it is, has less than 20% of people of working age on Earth. Uh, so most people out there don't have a digital professional uh, 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 profile. But um, also, uh, the process of finding work is, is, has been dehumanized uh, uh, for the longest time. So when you submit an application to a job, most people by far never get to know what happened with their application. They don't get feedback. They don't know uh, if they were good enough or if they were not good enough, why they weren't good enough. So we are trying to bring automation and, and humanity to, to the process alongside many other things. But anyway, it's a new network and it's a bold bet. Our goal is to eventually have all jobs and all talent out there. And as uh, any other two-sided network, we have the chicken and egg dilemma. Uh, we need to kickstart network effects as many, in many ways. Uh, or as good as, uh, as fast as we can. And uh, I decided not to pursue a single uh, way of kickstarting network effects. I decided to pursue every alternative out there that seemed viable. And one of them is investors. I figure if instead of having one or two VCs in there investing in Torre, I can have 10, 20, 50 different angel investors uh, each one of them is likely going to end up bringing their network, bringing their companies to, tilo, uh, to Pilot Torre, etc. So I decided to, 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 to do that, to almost crowdfund, crowdfund uh, our, our seed round. And uh, it worked. We ended up with uh, 50 plus investors from 15 plus different continents. I have investors in four different continents uh, out there, and all of them are helping us with the, with the growth of Torre. And not only that, like they are engaged on providing input on uh, our product and uh, introducing us to uh, companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the timing actually of the pandemic ended up being really good because 
I and found myself interacting uh, with investors from all over the world without having to go visit them, but simply having a Zoom conversation uh, with them and uh, pitching them uh, Torre. And, uh, and that's why uh, we're able to, to reach people as far as the Philippines, Singapore, uh, Saudi Arabia, Greece, uh, and make them investors in, in Torre. It's amazing. So they represent almost like nodes in your network. I mean, you know, it's a way to yep. kick kickstart, you know, these nodes in your network that, you know, allow you to plug into these basically, uh, yeah, local networks, because your business, you want to build a global business. So you need to kickstart the kind of jobs access and these people just are really plugged in. So that's, I think it's a smart way to do it. And there's definitely interesting value coming from some investors, but not all investors provide a lot of value. There's a discussion about that I, that I like to think about, which is capital advice and network is how I kind of think <laughs> about. And the reality is that most investors, the main thing they provide is money. And that's just natural because if you're if you have a portfolio of fifty companies, you can't be a service provider for all of them. I and mean, it's the reason why Andreessen Horowitz has hundreds of people on staff is because they are trying to become a service provider on top of a fund. But that's not a very replicable model. And also, most funds in Latin America or globally, they're not so large where they can afford to hire three hundred people on staff that specialize in every single sector of a business. So I think it's smart where you're replicating. The value add, you're, you're kind of decentralizing the support by having these nodes in a network. And I think that's a great way to kind of kickstart uh, the network effect. And the business model of Andreessen Horowitz has not been validated yet. So it's something to yet to be seen. It's true. It's true. I'd say they're doing pretty well. We'll see how all their investments uh, pan out, but it's a bold move. We'll see. So turn the tables a little bit. You talked about the fundraising, which was new to you, but it's kind of ironic that a shark on Shark Tank, I mean, <laughs> I'll, if I can say it, I remember you called me and you're like, hey, Brian, can you help me with this fundraising thing? I'm like, wait a minute, you're the shark on Shark Tank. <laughs> you know, just teasing you a little bit, not making myself sound too special here. But I did have more experience raising capital because I didn't have the luxury of like a super cash flow business like you did uh, multiple businesses. So, you know, you didn't need the money. It's funny when you're, you look at this, I think at one point you were like, oh, I really like the idea that Brian was able to scale his business and, you know, raise a bunch of capital. And on the other side, I was like, I love how Alex is building these profitable businesses where he doesn't have to depend on investors. So it's kind of ironic because now I'm building Latitude and I'm not raising any money. So I think that we're like places <laughs> here. But talk about that experience. You have been an investor. And so what did you learn about investing when you went fundraising? And what did you learn about fundraising as an investor? What I learned about fundraising as an investor and what did i learn uh, i mean you were previously investing yeah. primarily and so what was the experience like having done that before and what things did, did it allow you i mean despite you i remember you called me and you're like hey i'm gonna fundraise i'd like to chat with you about it i mean you ended up being a pretty good fundraiser and like you did great there you were probably it was just new to you but like what did you having had the experience of being an investor before what were the things that you applied and thought of having deployed capital before usually it's kind of as an entrepreneur like you know you have a unique perspective because you were building companies and investing at the same time so what were the things that you learned by when you had deployed the capital before that was applicable to you when you went fundraising that helped you be more effective by the way your original question was clear i was just trying to 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 reflect on my stupidity there because <laughs> uh, because i think i didn't learn enough 
I didn't reflect enough on my on, on, as an investor that I ended up applying in, in uh, when fundraising, and I should have. And I think the reason I didn't learn a lot is because angel investment, which is what I did, which is very different from venture capital investment, where you are handling other other people's money. Um, it's very emotional. It's very very emotional, and uh, being that emotional. It's not like you end up uh, building a checklist of things that you have to check upon. It becomes very uh, instinctive and, and intuitive uh, to, to invest. So when it came the moment to fundraise, I, it wasn't easy for me at all because my, like, like my empathy levels are low to do something that it was going to obviously wake up emotions on investors. So, uh, and also because you end up uh, having to deal with a lot of rejection. It's very interesting, but, but, but uh, like building bootstrap companies, like I didn't have to deal with a lot of rejection. Like, yeah, I know that 20% of the people that sign up are going to pay or 10% or whatever it is, which means that implicitly, like 80% of people are rejecting you, right? But you don't, you don't get to learn about them. You only get to see like the money coming into the bank from the people that actually paid you. When you raise capital, you have to deal with the no's, right? Like people tell you, no, I'm not interested, or no, thank you, or uh, you are too early, or whatever, right? Uh, uh, so uh, handling that re rejection is something that I think I should have learned better when I was deploying capital as an investor that I, that I, that I uh, didn't. One thing that I did learn is that there are many types of investors. And I think I learned this uh, 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 primarily through Shark Tank because here living in Silicon Valley, like angel investors, they tend to behave relatively the same. And that is, hey, here you have uh, a check and uh, here's my email address. If you need me, let me know, I'll help you. But otherwise, like just tell me when you have, when you IPO or, or, or when you exit and, and that's it, right? Very hands-off investment. Shark Tank, uh, I ended up being exposed to many other investors that had very different interests. Uh, so that was, was a very important lesson that I took into account when raising capital for Torre, because I was raising capital not only in Silicon Valley and New York City and Boston, but I was raising capital everywhere. So uh, it was very easy to come across, let's say, family offices or local Indian investors in some markets that wanted to execute that they wanted a large portion of the company because they wanted to be hands-off uh, in, in there. And either, uh, so I'd set up filters very quickly to either realize, okay, this is not a good fit, or make sure that they had clear expectations from the get-go, like, hey, listen, it's not like you're going to manage the business just because you're putting 50K into, the, into this company. So that was important. And, and the other thing that I realized is that... Let me just frame that real quick. Let me, let me frame it real quick. So matching expectations was yep. a big thing you did, like making yep. sure that what you were looking for and what the person was looking for yep. met met in the middle. Yeah, especially when you're looking for more than just money, right? Like yep. Because in Torre, you, you're committing to opening doors for Torre in, in addition to just giving uh, uh, capital. And that, that commitment needs to be clear because usually it's never going to be written, right? It's something that you, that you, that you say, but you don't necessarily write. I like it. Yeah, it's good. It's good to get that commitment. I mean, Ideally, you have an investor that, yes, yeah, it does more than money. As we said yeah. before, it doesn't always happen. But if you construct your fundraising around like, hey, how can this person help me beyond the money? Then you're getting more value for the money even. 
Correct. And another thing, it's uh, there are some, uh, uh, but I learned this already on the fundraising process and not so much before. There are some investors that are heavily focused on the why. There are some others that are more focused on the who. There are others that are focused on the how and others that are focused on the what. And for me, the investors that I enjoy the most are the ones that have a lot of experience with the, with the what and the how, but are primarily focused on identifying the who and the why. If you are getting an investor in early stages that is investing in you just because your numbers are going up, I don't think that's the best investor because that investor is going to be happy only for as long as your numbers are going up. You need early investors that are going to support you as a human being and are going to support your cause, even if the numbers are not where uh, you want them to be all the time. I, I really, really like that explanation. It's the first time I've ever heard uh, someone frame the who, what, how, and why. It makes so much sense to me when you say it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, the what you described, just repeating, the people you like to work with are the people that understand the how and the what, which is great. It's like very, very, you know, ideally they've built something before or they, mm-hmm. you know, they've scaled something. So like they, they get that kind of tactical piece and, and how, to, how to execute. But they're really focused on the why and yeah. with the who is that the team or the market? The the team. Like who yeah. are they investing on? Like they want to know about me as a person. Yes. What are my strengths, my weaknesses, and where is that I have potential? Love it. I love that. I think that's that's a really. Uh, I really like that. I'm I'm going to be thinking more about the lens of when people are evaluating things. Like how are they looking at it? From what perspective? And and actually, I really geek out on the psychology of this stuff. And I think that's like such an important element of fundraising is just the psychology, what motivates people, why do they do things? Because those are all things that if you can really understand that, you can just position yourself for for success. And the frustration is going to happen no matter what. Like you said, 80 people are going to say no or 80% of the, the opportunities. So how did you end up dealing with that frustration of people saying no? And like, how do you not take it personally? I, I talked to a friend called Brian Record, and I <laughs> and he told me, uh, and, and I remember this, this uh, we, were, we were at your home, sitting bef- beside your pool, and I think you told me I had to talk to 38 investors yeah. before I got the first yes. Yeah. And I figured, okay, if Brian, that is a great speaker, uh, it's a very likable person, had to do that, I should expect my ratio to be significantly lower than that. So I have to get ready for a lot of no's. So it was it was that, and that allowed me not to take it personal. Uh, of course, it's difficult, right? Because because getting no and no and no, it's not it's not personal. It's like like you hitting a wall on the wall, not giving up. But when you get that first yes, oh man, it feels so good. And then after that, it really becomes a, a numbers game. Yeah. Well, one advantage you have also is that like, you, you know, you also did finance a lot of what you're doing. And I think that like, when I look at and talk to an entrepreneur and they're like, I'm all in on this and like, I'm putting my own money behind it. You know, that was one thing I was talking to a founder this morning who's fundraising. I can't say the name of the company, but it's a very, very hot. I'll tell you afterwards and, and, and let you know, but this deal is very exciting. And, you know, he's, he's talking to all the investors They're They're all excited about it. And it's, going to be probably a very, very nice looking round coming together. And, you know, he's like, do you have any advice? I'm talking to, you know, these names here, some big names. And one of the things that, I, you know, I responded with is, you know, when I was fundraising, I had sold 
my apartment and put all the money into the business. And that story along with like, it sends a message, right? It's like, I'm so deeply committed to this and you have to give people a reason to believe, right? And so if you can, you know, share those things that like really illustrate your deep conviction and your kind of, you know, that was something that I I would unabashedly tell everyone that because it was true. And it was a, a way of me saying like, I'm just not going to give up to this thing works. And the psychological understanding of like when an investor hears that in their mind, they're just, they're looking for ways to, you know, to believe in you. And, and that's just, that gives them more, more fuel for the fire. And so, you know, I think that, yep. and, and you, you putting money into your own business and, you know, being all in on this and saying, look, this is going to be my, my last act kind of like, that is, that's a big deal because you've already been super successful. And when you say that, like people take that seriously. Yes, yes, it, it helps a lot. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's much easier when you are inviting people to be your co-investors rather than your investors, right? I want you to co-invest with me in this dream in here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. So let's talk, I want to double click on the, the Shark Tank stuff real quick and the Torre Accelerator also, because this is, you know, I remember we were on a walk in Napa and you were telling me about it and I'm just like, it kind of dawned on me. Like, oh, this is really an interesting idea for the region. I'm obviously one of those that really likes the kind of venture world and like all the business I've built, they start off with not raising money, just not by design, just I couldn't raise money. But in the last couple of years, I thought a lot about angel investing and venture and how to scale. But the reality is that 99% of the companies in Latin America or in the world are not venture-backed companies, right? That don't. And I recently spoke with some founders. I'll mentor people that are, take a call from a Torre accelerated company because I want to support what you're doing. And you've been a, a speaker at Latitude. And you know, we both like Thank you. believe the rising tide lifts all ships. And if we can help each other, it just creates a stronger dynamic for the for us in the whole region. But I had a call with these founders, and like it's not a business that I'd probably personally invest in because it doesn't fit my thesis, but it was in the real estate space. And I'm like, this business is a great business. It's gonna be a good business, it makes sense. It actually happened to be like very similar to my first business that I built. And so I'm like, I know this business works. And so talk a little bit about your business model for the accelerator, because I think it could be tremendous and a huge opportunity about how you're supporting those companies that aren't raising venture and need some additional help and maybe cash flow like the business that you've built and what the vision of that company is or that accelerator. So, so the accelerator is one of the uh, startups that has uh, come out of the Emma startup studio, and um, the the premise behind the behind the accelerator came out of an insight that was in turn developed in Shark Tank. So, um, the very first season of Shark Tank, this is early 2018. The I noticed that almost half of the companies that were pitching, they were cash positive, and uh, they were asking for money and they were giving away, in some cases, a significant portion of their business, not because they needed the money, but because they wanted advice. They wanted some strategic partner in there to help them know whether that what they were doing made sense, to help them a clear north of where the, they wanted the company to go. And I figured, well, like, this doesn't make sense. Why are you giving so much equity in your company? Why are you accepting money for a business that doesn't need the money because you're cash positive and you're actually growing? So 
Um, uh, and, and of course, there are several reasons why the default thinking is that, no, you need a partner to put money if you want to have that person in the, in the business as a partner. But I figured that, that uh, there might be other ways of doing that. And that's when I wrote an article proposing an accelerator based on a concept that I call the convertible rev share. So what if an accelerator could help an entrepreneur or a company with strategic advice? with mentorship, with coaching, with uh, uh, sales leads, uh, not in exchange of equity, but maybe in exchange of some rev share, a small amount of rev share that in certain scenarios could convert into equity to make sure that that wouldn't slow down the growth of the, of the company. And that blog post went viral. I got over 400 companies telling me, hey, I hear you. I bootstrap a company. I want help. I want advice to grow it faster. I don't need money. I simply need to know how can I grow this faster. And when you look at it, uh, there are many, many businesses that we consider today lifestyle businesses that could benefit from that. Like every consulting business, uh, influencers, uh, and many others fall into that criteria in addition to many other traditional uh, uh, businesses. So uh, in early, you know, mid 2019, we launched the accelerator and uh, it has worked uh, really well. Initially, we run a private beta with around 40 companies uh, or so. And, uh, and uh, early, late last year, we uh, uh, were happy to figure that it had reached product market fit. It's now self-sustainable, by the way. So we built an accelerator for bootstrap companies that was bootstrapped successfully. And, uh, and uh, well, it is now growing, although we do believe that uh, it, we are going to raise some significant capital for the accelerator, as uh, we know that if we execute well and we scale the accelerator well, we are going to be able to accelerate 1 million entrepreneurs within a decade. And I know that the number sounds like crazy, but, but 1 million entrepreneurs is only but a tiny fraction of all of the entrepreneurs that are out there. Accelerators, because they are focused only on, on, on business that can scale exponentially, that are venture-backed, they are focusing only on a tiny fraction of that market. But with an accelerator focused on the other 99%, we can dream of significantly larger impact out there. Give us, give us an idea of like the typical business that you would look at or a business that you've recently supported just so that we can, because like it's hard to think of like the world, right? Like, yeah. but make it tangible. One of the cool things is that I don't think there is anything typical <laughs> in the companies that we have in the accelerator, yeah. uh, but I, so, so I'll, I'll give you like uh, some, some ideas of how different they are. We have one company that is a fashion company that sells yeah, like, ne like neck scarves, but that you can use as, as hats as well, or like cover to your face or to skiing, for example, many things yeah. like, like Buff. I think yeah. uh, there is a brand called Buff here in the US that does yeah. something like that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's a company and uh, they were selling physically. They joined the accelerator. They opened their online channel uh, during the pandemic. They move online exclusively. Today, they are significantly larger than what they were uh, before. And they, they call this growth in the company the Tornegra effect, by the way. I'm very proud of, of, uh, of, of that. That's the name of the accelerator. Uh, we have other company that is a SaaS business that offers uh, CRM and real estate solution websites uh, for real estate engines. Uh, the company you were talking uh, a moment ago. So that's another company and they're bootstrapped uh, to, to almost seven figures uh, per year. Uh, really good. Uh, we have a company that exports bananas and other exotic fruits from Colombia to European markets. Uh, 
we are helping them uh, as well uh, figure how to better do marketing, how to better do branding, how to use technology uh, to to accelerate, etc., uh, etc. Et so it's there is a little bit of everything in there. What I like about it is if you think of like the consulting, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, like, and even like boutique consultants, it's impossible for like a, a small to medium sized company to hire someone that can come in and help with the strategy and other, and other things. And so what you're actually doing is you're saying, listen, we're willing to help you and we're going to take some of the risk involved here, but we want to have some of the upside. And it's just a massive market opportunity, right? Because it's a majority of the companies, regardless, they all need help with something, branding, marketing, running paid search campaigns, engineering, and whatever it is. And you can build out the, the support system for that. It seems like a hard business to scale. How do you scale it? Technology. So what we realize is most of those companies, their founders do not know what KPIs are. They do not know what OKRs are. They do not know how to actually write down the strategy of a company, how to set up proper hiring mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's going back to the basics with many of them. So without having to give them too much of, uh, without, without having to give them a lot of information, we already can have a significant impact of them um, because those are questions that they didn't know they need, they needed to be asking. So, um, that's that's on one side, and, and we, are, we are realizing that there are some curriculums that we can build. But then, uh, as they, those companies scale, then it becomes more important not to coach them, but to find mentors for different stages that they have. And that's where my background comes into play. I'm really good at matching people with opportunities. And mentoring is one of many opportunities people are looking forward to, to do. So we uh, are going to be deploying algorithms to help identify the best mentors for each entrepreneur at scale. And by the way, this is not like it's uh, necessarily uh, work that mentors are giving away for free. One of the beauties of this model is that that ref share that the company pays to the accelerator, a large portion of that actually goes back to the mentors. And uh, the more impact the mentor had on the business, the more money that mentor is going to end up getting for years to come uh, in there. So it's also beneficial for the mentors, which is something that most accelerators, unfortunately, don't offer. Mentors have to work for free in there. So that's, that's also helping in there. It's almost like the verticalization of like uh, Upwork, where you're actually, you, you, know, in, you know, you have these freelance or like support, <laughs> and then you've got full marketplace now where you're actually getting them to solve the problems help them solve the problems, and then they're getting paid. It's really interesting if you can think of it like a marketplace as well, which I know that you're a fan of, and you've built other businesses in, in kind of similar sectors. So you're really just matching the, the challenges that are needed with the experts, and then you're sharing in the, in the revenue of that, which I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a really interesting idea. I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. And uh, I, I just love the, the bootstrapping component to it. By the way, we are looking for a CEO for that company so that they can okay. properly graduate from 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 uh, the from the studio. So anyone listening here, if you like the idea, please reach out to me. <laughs> I'm looking for a CEO. An incredible opportunity to uh, see a lot of different businesses and and scale something. So I want to talk about the Shark Tank experience a little bit, and you know maybe you can share what's the most memorable pitch that you've heard on Shark Tank and why. Okay, uh, the most memorable pitch. I think it's uh, uh, the Kiwi, the Kiwi bot pitch. This is the uh, mascot of that company. So as you can guess, I invested on it. So just for for context, this is a company that is creating self-driving 
robots that are delivering food and medicine uh, in the US. And um, while the service or the value that they are creating is being created here in the US, most of the technology was created actually in Colombia. And uh, more interestingly is that while they develop the self-driving technology, which still they have a lot of work to do for that, uh, those robots are being driven by professional remote drivers from that are distributed all over the world. So they have a remote workforce of drivers driving robots all over uh, LA and San Francisco these days. But anyway, that on its own is like a remarkable uh, company. But the most remarkable part uh, part of the, of the of that pitch is that uh, Felipe, the CEO, uh, he came to stage with flip-flops <laughs> to begin with. And he was uh, very straightforward with the investors. Uh, uh, the, in, 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 in Latin America, uh, this is Shark Tank uh, in Latin America, by the way, um, there is uh, social classes are very marked. And uh, they, I, I've noticed that the People tend to be overly respectful to the to the to the to the to, to unhealthy extents with people in positions of power, and uh, you can see that in, in in Shark Tank. So Felipe was uh, the first uh, pitch, or at least not the first, but one of the pitches uh, where definitely he was talking more on a equals uh, situation with the investor rather than. Uh, uh, kind of looking at the investor as if the investor was sitting on some kind of pedestal. And, and I remember he was negotiating, uh, tough. Uh, he, he came up with the terms of the round that he was closing. And, uh, and one of the other sharks, uh, told him, Hey, uh, I, I want to go in, but I need three times as much equity and this and that. And his answer was like, no, that's not how you do. That's not that's not how you invest. Like uh, we have this word in Spanish, regateo. It's, it's not like you have to to cheapen on 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 the negotiation. Like those are the terms, and if you like them, good. If not, that's it. We don't do business. Like that kind of conversation is what I want more uh, entrepreneurs to do, especially in in Latin America when it comes to talking to investors. But an investor should be an honor to be able to invest in your company. It should be a privilege to invest in your company. They are not doing you a favor. Uh, and, and the more entrepreneurs feel that's the case, I think the better it is going to be for the, for the ecosystem. I love that. I mean, this is their job. <laughs> like, like their job is to invest in you. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I ask entrepreneurs to like frame it that way because we have this kind of like a bit of the mentality of like, yeah, like you said, they're doing a favor and going back to the kind of like social class thing, I remember being very shocked when I got to Colombia and you get your energy bill and it says Estrato Cinco, says Cuatro. <laughs> and so it's like you're getting your, your energy bill is actually telling you what social class you're in, which is it's a, you know, something very foreign to me. And I do think that there is a bit of like a, people treat certain people in a certain way. And so I like that he showed up in flip flops, which is. Uh, also, as a gringo in Colombia, uh, I remember walking around Bogota in flip flops. It's like the fastest way to spot a foreigner, usually, right? <laughs> it's like a foreign, whoever wears flip flops in in Bogota is like you're guaranteed you're guaranteed you're from somewhere else. Usually, um, that's 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 at least what I've been told. That's an amazing story and an amazing product. Um, 
and uh, an amazing kind of you know, mission to like, and what it fits really well with you in a lot of ways, right? Super tech driven, remote workforce, like all the yeah. other things that, by the way, for those listening, uh, Alex wrote a book called Remoter. We'll link it up in the show notes here so people can pick up the book. It's it's on Amazon. In fact, it's, is it a free read on Amazon? Uh, no, no, but, uh, it, uh, it, it depends on the subscription you have. I think that if you're part of, uh, prime or something like that, you get it for free. Yeah. yeah that's cool. It's, it's a great book. And, and I reference, uh, some of, in my book, I reference, there's a chapter, you know, where I mentioned remote and, uh, you know, Alex is, is the, the definitely the, uh, OG on all remote things remote. So that's a cool story about the, the, about Kiwi and, uh, just kind of wrapping up here, I wanted to double double click on a couple other things. So, how do you keep track of all this shit? <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, you know, like th- that's my kind of my last, you know, thought. All these different teams, you've got teams all over the world. You've got people in how many countries, and you've got all these companies. Like I, the thing that I can't even like keep track of the basic stuff that I've got going on, and uh, you know, so how do you? What's your secret there? Uh, and how do you have the, the discipline to kind of like stay focused on things while managing all the different things you have going on? On, on one side, if, just because I have to do it, in, uh, on, and I'll get to that in a moment. On the other hand, uh, it's, it has taken a significant amount of time to get to the point where we are at right now. And we still have a lot of room for improvement in terms of how we handle all of those things. And I say we because I also in, include Tanya on all of the things that, that, that we are doing. And uh, a, key, a key part of this is being able to find great CEOs for the companies that we create, right? So yeah, I created Voice123 and then I went on to create Money Studio and then I went on to create, sorry, Let Me Go and then Money Studio and then from Money Studio to, to Torre and now other companies in, in, in the startup studio. And, uh, and finding really good CEOs for those companies as I move to the next stage, uh, it's been uh, key for this. And it's not easy. I five more CEOs than the CEOs we have uh, today. And, uh, but more and more, I've learned what it takes to be a good CEO. By the way, not a, and a good CEO of a scale-up is different than a good CEO for a, for a startup. So I had to learn that uh, the hard way. And then you have to make yourself attractive as well. Like uh, Reddit has this, this uh, meme going around that Rule number one of uh, of uh, of dating is being attractive, and rule number two is don't be unattractive. The same thing happens when you are hiring people, when you are hiring co-founders and CEOs for your companies. You need to be attractive, and that takes a significant amount of time. This conversation, right? One of the byproducts is some people might listen to that, some people might enjoy what we are talking, and some people might have now a slightly higher chance of one day working with us because they were able to listen to, 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 to this. So uh, finding really, really good people. And, um, and we are trying to actually, all of those things that make a really good person for me, because a good person for me is likely going to be different than a good person for you and for all of the people listening in here. In Torre, we are, we are actually writing down the math of what professional culture fit actually means, by the way, uh, so that people can really do this for, for, for finding co-founders and finding employees and finding bosses and finding teams they want to 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 work with um, that's one thing the other thing it's being uh, is building processes uh, so I've created frameworks for product management for user research for metrics 
And all of the companies in our portfolio, they have to follow those metrics. And we meet periodically, we review that periodically. So uh, it's relatively easy and quick to know where things are at if we are following rel- at least relatively similar processes. But then lastly, and more importantly, it's that uh, Hania and I are very passionate about building new things, about coming up with new things. And it's not a question of, are we going to be able to handle all of that? Are we going to be able to do that? Is that we have to do it, right? Like if, if people that have our capabilities that, has had the, that, have, that have had the luck that we have, we don't invest on making the world better, on developing new ways of making humankind um, more productive, on uh, making humankind more knowledgeable of delivering more value, who's going to do it? So it's our responsibility as, as human beings on, on doing that. And when you realize that that's your call in life, that, that and by the way, my motto in life, I stole that from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, when, when uh, one of the characters, HAL 9000 says that my goal is to make myself, is to put myself to the best possible use which is all I can think any conscious entity can ever hope to do. When, when we figure that that's our responsibility, then everything else is details. Love it, man. I feel like that uh, is like a great way to end this podcast. But the problem is I have a bunch of questions. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. No, I, I, I want to double click on a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned this like zero to one and then scale up. And that really got me thinking because... I mean, you've done this a bunch of times, like you've gone from zero to one multiple times because you've created, it's a little cliche, the whole serial entrepreneur, um, but like this is done it a bunch of times. So like, talk about what are the skills that require the serial entrepreneur to like go from zero to one? What are the things that you think are just absolutely critical about being successful? And then secondly, what's the difference on the skill set and the things that are required to be a successful manager and, and builder of a scale up company? The, I think that the main, uh, the, the, there are many things that I, I, I don't believe that are, that are silver bullets, but on the first one, the person needs to be the most passionate about the why, uh, why you're doing something. That's for the, for the founder, for, 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 for the, that zero to one person. While the leader of the scale, scale up should potentially be as passionate about the why as about the how, like how are we going to do it? So building processes is about making sure that there are systems that become uh, scalable and, and such. That's the that's the the, the largest differentiator. And uh, m- there are many many founders that are really good at uh, uh, understanding the why and coming up with with things and taking companies to product market fit, but they are terrible with the how. There is a small subset that is good with the how but not necessarily uh, uh, most of them. So that's when you might want to transfer leadership over to a more professional, uh, uh, not, not more professional, a different CEO, right? That, that has more knowledge in that regard. A different skill set. I mean, I saw this yeah. with the team. There, usually there's a lot of people that are really good at like the you know, creative vision side and then there's like the execution and like it's hard to find somebody that can like see everything and then execute it's rare that you, and that's where you find the outliers in terms of people that are incredible is the people that can have vision and also execute. And, and that's what makes people stand out, I think. 
and and I've seen uh, some some founders uh, uh, that early on, like you have co-founders, one with the vision, but then you have a person that can scale, for example, a COO that is really good with the how. Uh, I've seen some others that lack that person, but eventually they hire they hire early on a COO that eventually helps them grow the company, even. Uh, even while they remain being the CEOs, right? Like outward facing C CEOs that are looking, that are talking primarily with investors, are talking with um, the media, et cetera, et cetera, while the COO is like really handling most of the stuff that is happening uh, internally. That's another way for scaling as well. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's, it's important to have that, that complementary skill set uh, internal. Yeah. I also think about things internal and external a lot. Listen, uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but this has been awesome. It's funny because I was saying before is like, there's been many times where I'm like, I just wish I should just turn the camera on when we're talking because like, there's a lot of really good insights. And so thank you for sharing that with our audience. And I'll link up a couple of things in the show notes for them to learn more about you. And, and yeah, man, I've just really, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, going on over a decade, just, you know, working with you in some capacity. And it's nice to have people in your, you're connected with that have amazing perspectives that complement you. And I consider you one of those people that I can just call and have a chat with about different things uh, that helps me think about what I'm building. And at the same time, I'm always happy to be a resource for you. So it's, you know, I'm really grateful for that. And uh, it's fun to be building all this stuff together. There's nothing more exciting than building stuff. Indeed, indeed. Thanks a lot for the invite, uh, uh, Brian. And uh, as I mentioned uh, a couple of times before, but I think uh, that's part of the message we want to leave here. Thanks for having allowed me to invest in your company back in the day. Uh, you, you, you were my first angel investment, actually. And, uh, and, and the fact that it worked well uh, motivated me to do many other investments uh, as well. So, so thank you. And, and, and hopefully... I can, I can still uh, recall where we were. We, we had a Skype call. And it's very fitting that you invested on the internet. We didn't, in, you weren't in person. So yeah. I think that that's a, that's a good way to kind of like frame the entire discussion because you, I think were the only check that I got, you're like the confirmed online. I was sitting on my back porch at my parents' house. I remember it's one of those things where you just remember where you are, uh, where you were. And so, uh, so yeah, thank you for believing in, in what we're building and yeah, let's keep building stuff together, man. There's a lot of opportunity yeah. investing in stuff and uh, really excited about uh, what we're building at Latitude and both, you and Tanya have been early supporters of that and mentors to what we're, we're doing. And so happy to return the favor in, in, in multiple ways as well. And so thanks a lot. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Alex Torrenegra, co-founder of Torre, Voice123, and Bunny Studio. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos la thumb. See you next week.